0: Hello and welcome back to the Cannabis Investing Network podcast. My name is Manish and today we have a really, really interesting episode for everybody. It is October 29th. Uh, If you're a cannabis investor, it is uh, a little bit of a dark time, at least the darkest it's been since rescheduling news happened. Um, And today I think we've got something that I think will be interesting for everybody, Jo- joining us today is Ryan Mao, who is COO at Solar Cannabis. Welcome, Ryan.
1: Thanks for having me, Manish. This is a really great honor.
0: <laughs> well, we're happy to have you, Ryan. <laughs> and um, you know, Ryan, you are COO at a cannabis uh, MSO, right? You're in two states, but the reason you're here today is really to talk about and do a deep dive on rescheduling.
1: Yeah. So to your point, we at Solar Cannabis Co. are in two states, Massachusetts and Rhode Island, um, and it seems to be that across the industry, everybody wants to talk about uh, rescheduling, descheduling, safer, you know generally at pretty mm-hmm. much every uh, event that we're at. So mm-hmm. you know, in my spare time decided to put together a piece, a deep dive as you mentioned, just kind of around the mechanics and what people typically don't really dive into the weeds about just to give everybody a little bit more information.
0: Yeah. And, and you know, we've been chatting for a little bit about this. Um, uh, so Ryan just posted this on his website. It's msomao.com. So that's msomao.com. And what I like is that he's really distilled it down to an easy to follow um, kind of bullet point type article with some nice graphics. And that's really what we're going to be working through today and talking through. And the goal is to you know, give people like myself who really do not enjoy the details uh, and mechanics of you know law and rulemaking processes, uh, but but be able to kind of explain this clearly and concisely, explain some of the nuance without getting lost um, in in some of the details. So that's our goal for today. Uh, we'll we'll hopefully be able to achieve that. But just before we start, Ryan, I, I think maybe it's important to talk a little bit about. You know, rescheduling, which is what got everyone excited at the end of August. Um, and then, you know, safe banking, which evolved into safer banking, which kind of helped fuel the rally throughout September. Um, that's kind of died out now towards the end of October. And, you know, people are, are in this familiar, you know, sad, dark place of, of having <laughs> watched a, a rally come and go. Uh, but I think I think just to keep this in good context, it's important to talk about, you know, why schedule three is actually more impactful um, than safer, and and you know although safer is an interesting and would be helpful for the industry, I think Schedule Three is a lot more important. At least that's that's my theory. Um, I'm curious to hear what you think as as an operator.
1: Yeah, definitely. So um, to your point, you know, with how everything's built up over the last few years, the industry overall seems to always get a little too euphoric whenever news like this breaks. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad that you know, operators, investors, uh, like are starting to tone down expectations a little bit, um, Mm -hmm. whenever stuff like this comes out. Uh, But to your point, in terms of why schedule three seems to be more impactful, uh, the big thing really is just control around the timeline, Mm -hmm. you know, schedule three, it's coming from the executive branch versus safer is coming from the legislative branch. Sure. So you know, with stocks as they are you know, volatile, same thing with policy and the goals of an administration. So with the entire safer situation, as we know, the speaker was ousted uh, on the third, which ironically happened just under a week after we got that landmark uh, vote through you know, uh, the Senate Banking Committee. Mm-hmm. And now that new speaker who has a continuing resolution um, on his plate, which expires November 17th. So the entire Congress has a lot of different things that they need to think about in sure. the next few months, and SAFER may not be on that plate anytime soon. Of course, could be surprised, which that would be a great, pleasant surprise to the upside, mm-hmm. versus, you know, with Schedule 3, we have a tangible 280E impact, where if we go from Schedule 1 down to Schedule 3, every operator will see immediate financial impact. Uh, Benefit to the upside. And that's solely controlled at this point by the DEA, who ultimately reports straight to President Biden.
0: Yeah, that's a great uh, overview of what we're talking about today. So and I I think the the benefit here is and how I like how you've laid out your post is you have kind of a clear prediction on what you think is going to happen and why. Um, and I think that's kind of the ray of sunshine uh, for for some of us, right? To to think about, um, and, and it's a relatively near term timeline. And so what we'll do is we're going to go through, we're going to talk about your prediction, we're going to talk about the mechanics and the timeline, go through each of the steps, focusing on the steps that are still to come, and at the very end, we're going to bring it back to you know you guys being an operator um, and how this impacts your business, how you're thinking about it, how investors can kind of think about it and, and plan ahead. And before we start, I think it's important to just note that, uh, you know, Ryan, you're a very thoughtful guy. You're not a lawyer, right? You're, you're not a uh, <laughs> political guy by nature, uh, but you clearly have spent a lot of time on this. So I, j- I just want to you know, make that clear to people. So just jumping into it, I guess, um, Ryan, I guess first question is, why did you go through and, and write all of this? I, I mean, um, you know, what, what was the what was the motivation for you behind doing this?
1: Yeah, definitely. And uh, appreciate the caveat. Definitely not a loyal, uh, lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not legal advice, uh, not financial advice, all the disclaimers, right? Sure. Um, but yeah, to your point, there's a lot of excitement around Schedule 3 in general. And, you know, when we look as an industry at policy, a lot of the time the actual bureaucracy of the federal government isn't truly understood in terms of how many steps everything takes. Sure. And across the industry, I think everyone is having the same question around Schedule 1 versus Schedule 2 versus Schedule 3 and the timing of all of it because it has a real material impact on their business. So I found myself having the same conversation uh, over and over again. So I thought to myself, if there's this many people who really have this many questions about the subject, why don't I take a little bit of a deeper dive into the admin piece? I already kind of had a uh, some prior exposure, so I kind of knew where to generally look. And, you know, over the last few weeks, just distilled down my thoughts into something that hopefully is useful to people in the industry when they're kind of planning for the next year and two years.
0: Yeah, and I definitely think it will be helpful. So what's the biggest misconception that you you most commonly hear back from people on this topic?
1: Yeah, so I think right now there's a lot of polarization going on. When we have conversations, it's quite often either people think that rescheduling just isn't going to happen at all because of politics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're very stern in their position. Um, And then there's some other people who think that it's going to happen, it's going to happen quickly, Mm -hmm. which both of those are, I would say, big misconceptions just because of the way in which that rulemaking process works. Of course, politics does come into it at a later date, potentially to the upside and downside. Um, But there is a real stringent process that the entire, you know, agencies across all of the federal branches, they really do adhere to this rulemaking process. So the good news is there is public notice in certain cases. Thank God, you know, America does a decent job of disclosing some of this up front. So we are able to kind of take a look at the tea leaves, so uh, as you will. And make reasonable predictions around when something could happen. And of course, if you really dive into the process, then we can figure out what those branches and possibilities may look like.
0: So, let's, I think that's a great um, segue into getting into the actual meat of this. So, let's talk about your prediction. So, I'll, let me just give it to you and, and tell us around rescheduling uh, what your prediction is.
1: Yeah, definitely. So given all of uh, the implications of rescheduling and the rulemaking process itself, my prediction baseline is for the DEA to announce in quotations their decision somewhere between February and April of 2024. And that announcement will, will not be a rule that is automatically effective. So I believe it would be a proposed rule, which would allow for the public to comment on this rule. And after that, they would take those public comments under consideration, Mm -hmm. revise that proposed rule, and then issue a final rule as close as possible to October 2024. And the baseline around that prediction is really combining what the rulemaking process steps should be in addition to the political implications of the 2024 presidential election.
0: Okay, so let's just recap what you're saying, right? And and to be clear, um, if your prediction comes true, this would be a huge win for the industry, right? So it's it's really the timing is centered around you know politics and the 2024 election, and the idea basically being that um, the DEA will come out with their rule in early 24, so something like between Feb and April right? And that it won't be effective immediately, right? There's the proposed rule. And then there's the interim final rule, the interim final rule would be effective immediately. So you don't think that would happen, it would just be a proposed rule, which would mean that it's not effective immediately, then it would be open for some comment period, Um, then the the DA has to reply to or at least consider all those comments in their final rule. And the final rule is kind of that that big what I call the mic drop moment where uh, that's kind of like, okay, that's, uh, it is what it is now. Although there are still some processes after that, but once that final rule comes into play, um, it's effective, maybe not immediately, but within, um, a short time frame, it becomes effective.
1: Yep. You've summarized it, it summarized it perfectly. Actually, to your point, the big question in the interim is, or is the DA going to come out with a proposed rule or are they going to come out with that? interim final rule. And the big debate here is how much risk does the administration want to take when they're publishing this rule? So if they publish that interim final rule, that to your point is effective immediately, which would be great for the industry because in that scenario, 280E automatically becomes one of those things of the past, Mm -hmm. but it also opens it up to challenges right away now that it's effective, And I think with the political piece of this, if I'm putting on my tinfoil cap per se, Mm -hmm. um, Biden already had one uh, marquee uh, stance in terms of the student loans get overturned on a later date. I really don't think he wants to put himself in a situation where prior to the actual election, he could face yet another large stumble in the public eye. So it makes more sense from a risk tolerance perspective to go with the proposed rule first before enacting a final rule later
0: yeah and, and you also pulled up here in, in your graphics you have some past examples right so um the first example is Marinol, which went from schedule two to schedule three now this is all the way back in 1998 okay um, but then the other example you have is is uh Hydrocodone, which is more recent, it's 2013 to 14, uh, but this actually went the opposite way, where it was Schedule Three and it became Schedule Two. Uh, but these are the kind of the two examples you've used to show timing. And from the HHS recommendation to the proposed rule um, was about let's call it 60 to 90 days, so two to three months, um, and then from the proposed rule to the final rule was another six months, right? So If you combine that and say it's nine months on the long end, um, then, you know, based on the HHS HHS recommendation for cannabis, which happened, you know, in in roughly August, then you'd be a lot sooner than what you're saying, right? But your point is kind of reading the political tea leaves and the fact that this is going to be, you know, maybe a hot, hotter button issue than these, these other two drugs, um, the timelines uh, get dragged out. um, But but also they line up cleaner for, you know, political vote winning purposes.
1: Yeah. So to your point, reading the political tea leaves, it definitely lines up cleaner to drag out the initial part of the process flow a little bit. Mm -hmm. At the same time, one of the things that we have to consider is those two examples, and there's not a lot of them uh, out there, uh, especially, for example, Marinol, that was talking about a FDA approved drug Mm -hmm. with, you know, THC as one of those components in it now we're talking about a much larger subject mm-hmm. which has additional implications that the DA does have to consider so with that initial proposed rulemaking there is more for that um, for the DA to consider overall before they put out that first draft so adding in some of those complexities could also naturally draw out the initial part of that process to just ironically line it up perfectly with uh, political considerations.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, no, uh, fair point. And, and like the two examples that you've used here, um, you know, the timelines are remarkably consistent, right? But um, there are other examples and, and probably a variety of examples. So can you just talk quickly about why you use these two as, as opposed to, you know, the world of examples out there?
1: Yeah, definitely. So with the international treaties that the U.S. is subject to, One of the big differences in terms of a hard line is schedule one and two versus three and below um, and how they actually interact with the treaties we're bound to. So I was really looking at two examples where the treaty aspect would actually come into play, where two was moving to three or three was moving up to two. Um, And in both cases, to your point, it was remarkably consistent. One of the things is uh, they can use a import-export permit situation to kind of make sure that we're still in compliance, how the DEA you know, ultimately goes about this. Uh, not a lawyer, so of course they probably know better than me, but they've done it in a few different cases in the past. So across the board, there are avenues to make this work, but of course it's up to the DEA's you know, decision whether or not they want to fight that battle. One of the wild cards that could come into play is actually, they could theoretically accept uh, the HHS recommendation and you know accept it on the medical principles, but then decide, hey, these other things make it too difficult to move to schedule three and ultimately land on a schedule two decision. But of course, if we're going back to the political considerations and kind of where Biden's really been pointing us to per se, that doesn't seem to be very likely, especially given some of the statements that he was making um, all the way in October of uh, last year.
0: Hmm. Hmm. And I I kind of agree with your you know thesis that uh, what you want to do is have the um, you want to have this decision come in close enough, like really close to the election, so you get the credit for it. Uh, but but not. Uh, not with enough time for people to actually poke holes in it and challenge it legally or or congressionally, right? So, um, it, the timeline you propose does at least to me make sense. So let's actually go through the mechanics, right? So in your post, you've outlined outlined nine steps that it takes to get to the DEA final rule, and then there's two steps beyond that um, that are are really just ways it could be reviewed or challenged, right? So let's just start with focusing on on the nine steps now. Of the nine steps, um, we've already made it through what five of the nine?
1: Correct. We've made it all the way past the recommendation from the HHS. They did confirm that that recommendation reached the DEA mm-hmm. uh, in August of uh, 2023.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, got it. And it also so let's let's focus on still what's what's to come, right? As opposed to what's already happened. But just one point I want to I want to ask you is that it mentions in step number five, which is the recommendation by the HHS, it, re- it mentions that it's based on the FDA's findings. So is that true in this case as well, that it's actually the FDA's findings that uh, prompted the recommendation?
1: Yeah, so the mechanics is really the HHS delegates uh, the FDA in all of these circumstances to do the review on their behalf. Okay. Um, the FDA reports into the HHS so ultimately the hhs um also has a secretary which is a cabinet level uh position mm-hmm. they end up just being the messenger per se of that recommendation over to the dea so the hhs isn't really doing the analysis themselves it's the fda
0: got it understood okay so now numbers steps numbers six to nine and let's just go quickly through it um so so i think it's important to note is that at this stage of the game, it's all in the DEA's hands, right? So step number six is the review and analysis. So that's kind of where we are now. Uh, Step number seven is the proposed rule, which your prediction is that this will come in sort of February to April, this proposed rule. Um, I'm calling this kind of the game changer moment because when this proposed rule comes out, um, then I think it will, again, spark up the interest. People will get very excited again um, and we will have a very... Um, we'll have a very near term uh, catalyst on the horizon. So I think this is the step that um, is really what we're all sort of waiting for. Step number eight is the public comment period or like what I've called the cooling off period. So this is where, you know, you're probably going to have all the opposition coming out. You know, you're going to have, you know, mothers coming out and saying that this is the worst thing that ever happened. And, and you know, all the things that, that uh, you know, we've already seen kind of happen. And then this public comment period, is typically—is it typically 30 to 60 days? Or is there, like, how long do you think this typically is?
1: Absolutely. Typically, it's 30 to 60 days from all of the ones that I've seen.
0: Got it. But then uh, you mentioned in your post that this period um, creates some, some uh, uncertainty around timing.
1: Yeah. So while, you know, there's typically an initial comment period, this is definitely going to be one of those true hot button issues Mm -hmm. so there is the ability to extend that public comment period and uh for example actually the usda when they were doing their rulemaking process for hemp they had a 60-day initial public comment period which they extended another 30 days after that and Mm -hmm. they actually reopened it again for another 30 days for a total of 120. So the more complex uh, and polarizing an issue is, the longer the public comment period has typically been across all agencies.
0: Got it. Okay, so we've got the public comment period, which you know this is going to be a little more contentious, probably going to be longer than your typical one to two months, um, and then we have your your final rulemaking, right? So in your previous examples, going back to it, the time between the proposed rule and the final rule was almost exactly six months. Right. So if this is going to have a little bit longer of a, um, a comment period, and it's going to be a little more contentious, maybe that six months is really more like nine months. Right. And if, again, if we work backwards from October, um, then we're kind of talking about something in the Jan or Feb window of, of having that, you know, game changing proposed rule. Absolutely. Yeah. And got that it.
1: actually lines up perfectly with primary season.
0: Got it. So, so let's talk about that, right? So, talk about this proposed proposed rule. So, this is going off off of your post, step number seven. So, walk us through this step. Um, what's sort of happening in the background? Will we have any hints as to what's coming? Is there any way for us to sniff out that something's you know coming earlier than than you know it hitting all the wires?
1: Yeah. So, to your point, a lot of people in the industry have been trying to sniff out if uh, anything's coming. One of the very interesting facts around this is Bloomberg reported that Schedule 3 was what the recommendation was. But other than Bloomberg, there's never been a confirmation by either the HHS or the DEA that Schedule 3 was the official recommendation. So a lot of people have filed a FOIA request to try to get the letter. And the letter has been sent back heavily redacted without that piece of information. Hmm. So right now we are kind of relying on Bloomberg uh, breaking the news in a uh, accurate manner, which obviously if they didn't, that'd be quite the reputational harm to their news uh, making ability. So other than that piece kind of being a little bit of a question mark, right now it's really in this black box situation where in the past the DEA has taken much longer when considering stuff like this. And this time, with this proposed rule, they do have to think through all of the downstream processes that could come into play versus in the past, they are not as impactful. Uh, In the case of Marinol, for example, that's a single drug, and we're really not talking about a giant comment period um, or a lot of stakeholders to comment on Mm -hmm. a single drug. Mm -hmm. So, right now, with this proposed rule behind the scenes, They have to review all of this uh, science and medical data from the FDA. But they also have to take a look at what they've said in the past across uh, every single time that cannabis has really come up for rescheduling and try to thread that needle and not potentially contradict themselves too much. So all of that considered, that's really where we're at, where there's no public notice that we're going to get. And if we do get something, then it's likely a leak, and in that case, it really gives additional credence to the pol- uh, potential political strategy rather than a just true rulemaking, you know,
0: process. So I, I just want to go back to touch on one thing you said that just gives me some some pause. So you're saying that <clears throat> it's only really Bloomberg's reporting um, that that uh, is giving us the idea that it's been recommended to go to Schedule 3. It hasn't been confirmed through any other uh, method or, or any other person?
1: Yeah, so to the best of my knowledge, um, big caveat there, there has been no public statement by the HH- HHS or the DEA explicitly stating that the recommendation was, scheduled, was from Schedule 1 down to Schedule 3. Um, and in terms of historical processes, the recommendation isn't typically made public um there's no you know press release there's no announcement it's usually included in the write-up later either in the proposed rule or in the interim final rule so they explicitly lay out hey the recommendation came to us on this date and the recommendation was this plus the science was this and they write this all out and they post it to the federal register so anybody uh, on the pod who wants to you know, dive into some historical examples can also look at the same information that I was looking at. But in the past, it has never been an actual press release. Um, in this case, the HHS was effectively directed by the president to conduct this review. So the spokesperson did issue a comment on it. But in that comment, I did not see a clear confirmation that the recommendation was for schedule 3.
0: Yeah, I just I just did a quick search while we were talking about this and and um uh it looks like Senate majority leader Chuck Schumer said in a statement that HHS had recommended it be moved from schedule 1 to 3. So it sounds like he's confirming it. Now, I mean maybe he doesn't know, but my guess is he probably does. Um and it it sounds like just looking at also like the Washington Post, they they talked to a person familiar with the recommendation who spoke on the condition of anonymity, uh, because they were not authorized to speak on it. So it sounds like it was leaked. uh, But I think that's a great point you're bringing up here that, you know, we're, we're sort of getting the whispers that it was schedule three, but it hasn't actually been confirmed by the department itself.
1: Yeah, so to your point, I'd say, you know, probability 90% schedule three, given all of these leaks, like, a lot of people will look really bad if the recommendation ended up being scheduled too. Um, but there's always that downside potential, right? Um, sure, you, you, you never know. I just for
0: Yeah, for sure. I think it's just important to point that out. So, okay, so to your point, um, we're in step number seven right now, which is the, um, sorry, we're in step number six, which is the review and analysis. There's no way to really know when this is going to hit. Correct. Got Based it. off
1: historical precedent, at least
0: sure and um going to the the point you've made here the um the key consideration here on the amount of time it takes you know it really could be could be anything right i think people got it in their head that there was kind of a 90 day window yeah so
1: to your point i've heard that quite a bit um there's no hard window the rulemaking process is effectively a gentleman's game per se, okay. it's a informal process with certain formal steps. But unless you know, you take the agency to court for taking too long, there's nothing in the rulemaking process that has explicit uh, hard cutoffs in terms of the amount of time an agency is allowed to take with each of these steps.
0: Got it. And then again, just going back to these examples, you know, the fact that this is a lot more wide reaching it, it makes sense. It's going to take more uh, time than it has taken in the past of that, that two to three months. So, uh, okay, fair enough. So that's number seven. And unfortunately, to your point, this is the black box moment, right? We're not sure what's going to happen next. Um, you know, we're, we're all hoping for, you know, something positive to happen. Um, but ultimately we, we just, we really don't know.
1: Absolutely. Um, the good, you know, silver lining here is compared to other cannabis black box moments we have had over the years, mm-hmm. this one feels a little bit more like a gray box.
0: Okay. B- because?
1: We do have actual confirmation from the HHS of the actual letter going over and, of mm-hmm. course, all of those public statements. So we right now have a black box around timing, but not on if this is actually happening. Which is, I think the big thing we're like, if you look at uh, safer banking, we all have a lot of hope around that piece of legislation eventually passing, but on both the actual piece of legislation, which has only made it out of one committee, Mm -hmm. um, and has not made it over to the house, plus the new house speaker has actually voted against cannabis quite a few times in the past, Mm -hmm. that is, you know, more of a black box in terms of actual
0: execution versus uh, schedule three. Got it, got it, fair enough. So so much higher degree of uncertainty around that than something happening here. So let's jump forward to the proposed rule, right? So this is what I'm kind of in my head thinking of as a game changer. So once the proposed rule comes out, you know, it's, it's sort of uh, likely that we'll see a repeat of what we just saw, where now we've got, you know, kind of a shorter horizon, people get excited, um, people are, you know, willing to probably make moves in the industry. But walk us through what this actually looks like, um, the, the, what, you know, step number seven, the proposed rule may end up being.
1: Yeah, so effectively, it's not going to create a uh, economy, right? We're talking about rescheduling from Schedule 1 down to Schedule 3. So it doesn't need to be a very large proposed rule that is all-encompassing of effectively legalizing uh, certain types of cannabis. Even a medical operator would not yet be a legal operator. Um, under schedule three, a lot of the, you know, actual things on it are not just standalone adult use or standalone medical dispensaries. Um, and with medical dispensaries, you know, a lot of the states have different frameworks around getting a medical card, but it's not necessarily a doctor actually giving that prescription in every case. So there's a lot to work out on that piece of it. Um, but it will have a immediate impact on 280E. That we all know. So with that proposed rule, um, the DA doesn't even have to mention the 280E part of it. We just know that the IRS will no longer be uh looking at cannabis companies for that 280e purpose. Sure. Um, post that proposed rule, then we go into that public comment period, which Uh, across the board, you know, the comments can be substantive or not substantive. Uh, it's really kind of anyone's game. Sure.
0: Sorry. Let's, let's just back up one second to the proposed rule. So, um, there's been some discussion of, you know, these two types of rules. So the idea that there's an interim final rule, right. And that rule, uh, would be effective immediately, uh, versus the proposed rule. So you've said, uh, that, Hey, we would love to have the interim final rule because It'd be effective immediately but you don't think that's likely. You think it's more likely you see a proposed rule.
1: Yes, so to your point, there's two types of rules, um, and one of them is a little bit more risky. So with the interim final rule, you're effectively saying that there's enough good cause, which uh, there's a giant uh, amount of legal definitions around that, which I won't dive into. I'm sorry, the Um, word,
0: it was good cause? Good cause. Okay.
1: And with that, effectively, Very few things would allow you to justify it um, from effectively putting something out there, making it effective immediately without giving the public enough time to actually comment on something of this magnitude. Now, Um, Ryan,
0: hang on, Ryan, though, isn't um, helping cannabis investors portfolio a good cause?
1: (laughs) You know, for you and me, potentially. I've got a few shares myself. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it may be a good cause under uh, capital markets, but probably not under uh, the administrative not what policy. Not
0: what they're considering, huh? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, not. Fair got enough. I wish. <laughs> so, so they, so unlikely to do the interim final rule because you know it, it's uh, it, they would have to have a pretty strong case for good cause, right? And you you mentioned it would be risky. So, what's the risk there?
1: Yeah, so the big risk is you put it out there, then somebody could immediately challenge it on the grounds that you did not consider good cause. Got it. <laughs> so, so there's been a few uh, challenges in the past for stuff like this, which that is an even easier challenge um, than pretty much all of the other reasons they could bring a challenge, yeah. just because, um, for example, with the uh, rescheduling, in quotations of CBD, The USDA, they were able to use an interim final rule because they had the 2018 Farm Bill. So it was the legislative branch effectively putting out a completely new law, which now gave them that good cause. Here, we don't have any legislative branch movement. We have the executive branch acting in its sole authority and capacity. So that good cause becomes much more difficult to really use in a way that would not be easily challenged by anybody who opposes it.
0: Got it. So if they do the, the, um, interim final rule, then, Hey, it's, we like it because it's effective immediately, but then it's more likely to get struck down or overturned later on. Yes. Got it. That's accurate. Okay. Understood. So that's, that's the thinking around it. And, um, it looks like also, you know, the, the. Uh, based on the other examples you've used, typically they they it doesn't look like they use the interim final rule very often. They do not. Got it. Okay, understood. So we understand that it's, it's most likely to be a proposed rule. Um, and then we go into the public comment period.
1: Yes. And then to your point, uh, the proposed rule is actually public notice. So the good news for the cannabis portfolios is we're going to get a second pop off the proposed rule, okay. um, maybe a giant cooling down period, similar to what sure. we experienced in the last two months.
0: This is, so, sorry, the, the second, the first pop we've already had, you're saying that in Yes. August. Okay, guys, so this would be the <laughs> second iteration of that.
1: Yep. And then uh, potentially during that public comment period, you have uh, the cooling off period, literally, unfortunately, for our portfolios again. So Mm -hmm. potentially so high. I don't know, not public uh, financial advice there.
0: Sure. (laughs) Um, And and sorry, just just going back to the proposed rule for a second. Um, Typically, what do you expect in a rule? Is it just as simple as saying we're moving from schedule one to schedule three? Or is it pretty comprehensive? Like what's what's put in a rule?
1: Yeah, so it's relatively comprehensive, because the actual um, information from the HHS uh, recommendation and all of the FDA uh, science is actually posted in this proposal, so people can comment on everything as it relates to the proposal. Got it. And that's also where, in this case, it has a direct impact on that public comment period.
0: Got it. And so, and and also just on the proposed rule, uh, so they give all the background, right? And they give all the scientific evidence, but are they also are they also say like are, are there implications beyond just rescheduling? Do they get into you know administration and you know um, you know what people are allowed or not allowed to do, or is it is it not that specific?
1: So it's not that specific, but they do get into um, effectively legalese on whether or not the uh, agency in this case has the authority to make this proposal.
0: Interesting. So, so just, just expand on that a little bit.
1: Yeah, so uh, they would effectively talk about things like the treaty potential implications. If they want to bring this up at this time, Mm -hmm. they would also effectively uh, put out all of the information related to potential future uh, considerations, such as the uh, congressional review aspect of this, I would effectively have in this uh, short form document, all of those kind of bulleted laid out just so that they are covered at a later date in terms of those challenges. It's just a effectively long list uh, of checkboxes that mm-hmm. they have to check off on this proposal. None of which really have a uh, substantive impact to you and I, um, but if they leave any of them out, then it becomes a issue at a later time.
0: Got it. Okay. Got it. And, and let's talk about the treaty at, at the end here. So let's, so uh, understood what, what you're saying. So let's move on to the public comment period. So like you're saying, typically 30 to 60 days, but uh, because of what this is, you know, maybe it ends up being 60, maybe, uh, maybe they do longer, maybe they extend. There's certainly going to be a lot of public commentary around this issue. Um, especially, you know, in an election year, as you pointed out, there's going to be primaries going on. Like this could be a pretty hot topic.
1: Oh, absolutely. And not to constantly uh, revisit the CBD uh, part of this, but that really is the closest comp we have in terms of something of the same magnitude. Uh, I believe the USDA mentioned that they received 5,900 public comments um, when they had to do their rulemaking process. So we should definitely expect it to be relatively substantive.
0: Now the only thing I just want to point out there is and, and you mentioned it's it was the USDA not the DEA and that's because the farm bill effectively legalized it so it was effectively already descheduled and they had to make all kinds of rules related to commerce whereas that wouldn't be the case here.
1: Correct. So we shouldn't have the same level um especially given that this is effectively a yes or no on the res- rescheduling Got it. and uh, whether or not it's going to schedule three.
0: Got it. Okay. So then you mentioned, you know, you have all these comments um, and and I believe you mentioned the DA has to reply in some form or fashion to these comments.
1: Yeah. So they effectively have to consider all of this in their actual final rulemaking process. And that's one of the other legal challenges that could potentially happen later where Mm -hmm. um, somebody could say, Hey, you didn't adequately consider all of these comments. So it's another one of those boxes they have to check. Mm-hmm. Now they don't need to publicly you know, reply, comment all to every single uh, comment on the actual uh, proposed rule, but they do need to have that um, already done should there be a challenge at a later point where they can point to it and say, we have, you know, consider all of this uh, information in mm-hmm. our final rulemaking process.
0: Got it. So this is the part that adds some uncertainty because you know, you could, it could get extended um, and then they have to, you know, show that they've actually considered all of these things. So uh, certainly, you know, we can see how, what would maybe normally be a six month timeframe could be elongated, right? I mean, I would expect it to be longer than, than the other two examples you have, right? So I think that lays, you know, you, you kind of mentioned April, uh, you know, Feb to April, I think it lays credence to being earlier on in the process, maybe Jan or Feb, Um, than being later on? Yeah,
1: definitely. So if the DEA is thinking along those lines and being, um, I guess, more strategic in their thinking around the amount of comments they are going to get, it certainly could be earlier. Um, The other kind of thing that we do have to think through is not having that commerce aspect of it. What will the comments really be on it? the overall proposed rule is relatively limited in scope. So there's Mm -hmm. not exactly that many different places that people could really uh, find fault in their overall uh, scheduling decision.
0: Yeah, interesting. It's it's a good point, right? It's a very narrow scope of what we're actually talking about here. I'm sure people are going to come out of the woodworks to talk about all kinds of issues. But uh, they have to be relevant to what they're actually, you know, opining on.
1: Exactly and since we aren't creating that entire uh commercial cannabis industry across the US that scope is very narrow and so while the DEA may receive just thousands of comments they may only be centered around a half a dozen or so issues
0: right right fair point okay so let's go to number 9 which is you know the the final rule um the, and and I'm calling kind of calling this the mic drop moment because this is where they go. Okay, look, we've we've done everything we're supposed to do. Here it is, right? Um, and and yeah, I mean, maybe just quickly talk about this. Like, will we have any idea between step eight and nine, or are we kind of in that black box territory again?
1: Yeah. So unfortunately, we're back in the black box. Uh, once the public comment period has gone and uh, completely, uh, the DEA brings it back internally to uh effectively take a look at those comments and consider them for the final rule there is typically not a hint that a final rule is coming at best they might do a press release a few days before it's officially posted Hmm. um, to the federal register but they're not going to say hey we're one month into it uh, or we're two months into it so it's really just going back to looking at potentially historical precedent around proposed rule versus final rule and how much time they typically take. It is a narrow scope and that does help in terms of getting that final rule out. And it really comes down to whether or not they want to take their time or really shrink it. They could do either.
0: Right, fair enough. And and we'll have some guidance in terms of if the public comment period is extended or not, right? So if it's 60 days and they extend it out another 30-30, that'll kind of help give us some guidance on, you know, it's gonna take a little bit longer or, or not.
1: Exactly. So to your point, after 60 days, they can extend it another 30. um, And they could even potentially reopen it later if after considering the first round, they believe that they need additional uh, comments from the public. Um, But if they don't reopen it, then typically that timeline is relatively consistent going from the end of the public comment period to that final rule being issued.
0: And then when that final rule comes out, um, they also put an effective date on it. Yes, they do. So what, what does that actually mean?
1: So with the final rules, it really comes down to whether or not that final rule has enough of a impact on the American economy. So depending on what type of rule it is, they have to, based off the Congressional Review Act, put an effective date of at least 60 days in the future. Um, to allow Congress enough time to review the final rule. So, if we're talking about just one drug right, that has a total market cap of maybe um, 50 million and the total addressable market is only at 5 million, then it's not really a major rule that would be subject to the congressional review. So, they could post that final rule and make it effective immediately. In this case, with the Section uh, 280E impact, this turns into one of those things where there could be congressional review, and that actual review process could turn into one of those uh, political football games again, um, and whether or not Congress, during congressional review, looking at the numbers, decides they don't necessarily want this rule. Of course, the good news is across the board, we're talking about you know 60 votes in the Senate, something like that in order to avoid uh, filibuster, mm-hmm. um, and we have presidential support. So it's unlikely for Congress at that point to really turn this around. But procedurally, they do have to make it effective 60 days later if they believe that impact will be significant to the economy.
0: So let's just, let's just look at this. So your past two examples, right? Your final rule, the first one for Marinol, was effective immediately. And the other one was effective 45 days later. So both of these would not have been considered major rules.
1: No, they would not have.
0: Right. And that makes sense. And, and obviously with cannabis, I mean, it's it uh, I think it's very hard to argue it wouldn't have an impact of 100 million or more. Right. So um, so oh, fair enough. So so this ha- this does fit into this major rule bucket. So what does it actually mean? Let's think about this. So let's say the rule comes out um, kind of mid to late October. So it's it's that October surprise. And let's say they give it a 90-day effective date, right? Well, let's say they make the effective date Jan 1st, right? So that would be um, essentially put you in the new year. So it goes for a congressional review. What does that actually mean? Does it mean that um, by default, if Congress does nothing before the effective date, it's all good? Or does, like, like, does, it, does Congress actually need to pass or agree to something? Or do they need to um, sort of pass something to repeal it?
1: Yeah. So to your point, if Congress is not able to muster a real challenge to it, by default, it goes into effect on the effective date. And given how hard it is for Congress to really you know, make a stance on pretty much anything right mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. it would be highly unlikely that they have the votes on both sides to do anything once that actual final rule comes out.
0: I think like listening to all of the steps involved, and and so we just touched on step number ten, and after step number eleven, which is legal challenges and, and judicial reviews, it actually helps give a lot of context to you know people who said, "Hey, schedule three is not good enough. This should really be descheduled." It kind of shows you all the steps involved, the places you can stumble, and why you know the the governments, you know, other than just political considerations. End up doing a kind of more middle of the road, you know, non-offensive approach because um, this is something that, you know, if if, you know, and I and I agree that it doesn't go far enough in this case, right? But because of that, it kind of makes it harder for people to mount a challenge against it.
1: Yeah, definitely. And to your point, it definitely doesn't go far enough given everything the industry has been through. But from a practical perspective. You know, walk, crawl, run is always a great idea in terms of implementing something. Mm -hmm. And in this scenario, we get to effectively flesh out, right, where the challenges will likely come from this rescheduling to Schedule 3. You'll be able to get that playbook and test some of your legal theories or strategies. And then at a later date, when you're really ready for a fight around descheduling, the government is also more prepared in that scenario. Versus yeah. Trying to just rush it today.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, crawl, walk, run is great, but sometimes if you spend years and years crawling, it's a little harder <laughs> to meet it. So well, you
1: know, I, we're, we're crawling and stumbling to the walk right now. Yeah, right?
0: <laughs> that's right. We're getting there. We're getting there. So I, I think the the good news is that um, if the if after they make their final rule, um, the it, it's eff- effectively default alive unless Congress all bands together and kills it, right? And so um, it's kind of using that momentum in your favor where it's very hard for Congress to do anything. Um, and certainly them all banding together and having to have the president's support um, in order to kill it would be very difficult. Now, granted, and the reason that effective period and date is, is important is that if the DEA says, look, we know this is contentious, we're gonna give it a six month you know, a f- a lag time for effective date, it could be a new president in the White House at that time, right? So, um, another kind of consideration that we have to keep in mind. Um, but if they make it something like, you know, Jan 1st then you know, you, you, you could be okay. Right. But even then it sounds like it would take a lot, uh, for that to happen. But, you know, if you have a new Congress and you end up having a, a red wave and a new president, you know, it's tough to say, right. So, um, there's still some uncertainty, I guess, in every step of this process, I think it's just important to point out.
1: Yeah, definitely. And to your point the DEA could definitely extend it. Um, But the good news here for uh, our cannabis portfolios is that uh, Congressional Review Act stipulates just at least 60 days. So the good news there is by default, if I'm Biden, I would definitely just default it to the 60 days and hit everything that the CRA uh, forces them to do in terms of the effective date Mm -hmm. and make sure that this is all set in stone prior to, you know, potentially a new president taking office.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair, fair point. So, okay. So we've covered all of the steps. Um, you know, the legal review sort of is what it is. It could get challenged in court, et cetera. Um, but I, uh, I was reading a different legal analysis that said it's, it's very rare. The judiciary gives a lot of credence to what these agencies do. Um, but you know, I mean, something to keep in, keep in mind, but again, the, the wheels of, uh, momentum sort of favor um, something having to be overturned, overturning something is very difficult, right? A- action to go back on something is very difficult. So I think we did a great job here of, of laying out the steps to come. Um, I'd like to talk about, you know, kind of practical implications. But before we, we close this section, any any final thoughts you want to leave people with regards to the process, your prediction, etc?
1: Yeah, so I think final thoughts really are uh, my crystal ball is as good as anyone else's, right? This prediction could be completely off base everywhere, but Mm -hmm. um, from a fundamental just analyzing the process perspective, I think I made uh, the steps as easy to distill as possible. Mm -hmm. Everyone out there, you know, do your own research, try to think through if there's any other places where the process may be accelerated or decelerated. Um, but I would say generally, based off of what I've been able to uncover, it does look like better days are coming. They may not be coming as fast as everyone's hoping for, but there is that silver lining really at the end of, you know, potentially 2024.
0: Yeah, that's that's a great point. And I mean, look, if if these things come in earlier, then, you know, you're talking about not even six months, right, to to get people excited again, which is usually the market's pretty good at pricing in things that are maybe six months away. Um, things that are a little further out, like 12 months plus, the market's not so so great at paying attention to. Um, sorry, one thing actually we forgot to talk about was the international treaty impact. So maybe just talk about what that is and would that impact you at the proposed rule stage or the final rule stage?
1: Yeah. So right now, the international treaties that we are subject to uh, effectively apply where if it's Schedule 1 being moved to Schedule 2, there's not really a big issue. Once it goes to Schedule 3, then all of a sudden there is a lot of different uh, legal frameworks that the DEA has to argue that they're not violating to move something from 1 or 2 below to 3 and uh, through 5. One of the things that the DEA has done in the past is use effectively import-export permits, where. They are moving something to Schedule 3. They add on this import-export portion mm-hmm. where all of a sudden they are still controlling it. There's many, many more layers uh, on top of that where they have to argue um, that they would hit you know, all of these different reporting uh, criteria, et cetera, to make sure that it's actually um, compliant with those treaties. Effectively, it just comes down to how much political will there is to get the DEA to do it. It doesn't seem like it's a impossible mountain to climb. Just mm-hmm. seems honestly like a lot of paperwork.
0: <laughs> Got it. Fair enough. Okay. So is that um is that something that gives you pause as to this whole process, you know, are you concerned that this might be something that derails us getting schedule 3 versus schedule 2? Yeah, so this is probably the
1: um biggest wild card, I'd say that is out there that is um, more substantial than the other things we've kind of talked about, uh, in the last hour or so. Um, I am definitely not an international treaty expert. Mm -hmm. Um, so the only thing that really helps me find comfort is how many times the DA has managed to get around that in the past in other cases. Mm -hmm. Um, but of course, if for some reason they wanted to be very safe, then that could throw schedule two back into all of this. Um, but the good news. Uh, across the board is, you know, if there's a will, there's a way. And if uh, the DEA reports to President Biden, and their boss is saying, I want Schedule 3, I think they will figure out a way to make it Schedule 3.
0: <laughs> yeah, fa- fair enough. Okay, lastly, as we're closing up here, um, look, you're an operator, you guys are vertically integrated in mass, you also have a dispensary in Rhode Island. Um, so if, if this is how you're thinking about the future of the industry, um, and, you know, just kind of zooming out your own personal opinion, what can operators do to take advantage of this and position themselves for it? And similarly, you know, what can investors do? um, You know, if we feel like there's a disconnect here between sentiment and and what might be, you know, a game changer coming only a couple months away?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I think the big thing is if I'm an operator and I don't own um, my retail asset, for example. Mm-hmm. This would be one of those things where post uh, changes to 280E, the depreciation expense that you get on retail is all of a sudden tax deductible. Mm. So this would be a great time to start talking to your landlords to see whether or not you could work out a deal to buy that property ahead of time. Um, obviously, if you've got a Very favorable lease, um, that lease expense does become um, deductible as well once 280E implications go away. So I say as a retail operator, there's a lot of financial maneuvering you could do ahead of 2024 if you share in the same opinion. Um, Of course, another thing which uh, right now the debt capital markets have come back into play, today that interest expense is not always uh, tax deductible. But should you have the same view and you have the cash flow to support additional debt on your balance sheet, this could be a great time to take it so that you do get that shield going forward. Um, I know a lot of operators that have been thinking about getting the debt post the Schedule Three recommendation. Um, one of the things that I would caution people on when kind of thinking through post Schedule Three and you know the capital markets just all of a sudden becoming more available. Um, today, it's not that banks can't work with cannabis companies, um, there is you know, FinCEN guidelines out there on how they won't uh, enforce things. Um, but overall, it's more of a how much uh, dollars do, does a bank need to spend on a compliance department mm-hmm. to monitor this asset, and how much time do they need to spend understanding all of these complex steps and regulations to really uh, provide a loan. So you know the loans may not be just automatically available uh, after schedule three versus right now it does seem like a good time with um, increased debt capital markets availability for you, some positioning as long as it's you know smart in terms of total leverage versus how much uh assets is on the balance sheet. but that you know easily translates over to the investor side of the things. I know that uh. You're very bullish on Verano. Full disclosure, so am I. Mm-hmm. I've got quite a bit of stock in Verano. They're the only public MSO that I own. Um, and to your point, if you're, you're an investor and you're looking at it in the same timeline, it's really just looking at those key things that are not uh, tax deductible today that will become tax deductible and theoretically give a big boost to overall cash flow and earnings.
0: So for both, it's kind of the, the same idea operators, you know, look for opportunities to kind of maneuver yourself, place yourself, it, you know, in, in a way that you're going to benefit from, um, you know, the 280 E-POP. And then similarly, as an investor, that, that same kind of idea, right? So I think that's why you specifically mentioned Verano, because, you know, they have a larger debt load, for example, and and that will, you know, be to their benefit once they can actually deduct that.
1: Exactly. And that's where you know this is a limited scope in terms of schedule one down to schedule three. Right. So there's a lot more that people who are more bullish overall of the downstream impacts can do. You know, there's a lot of different opinions around how uh, banks and custody come into play potentially a few months uh, after schedule three, and that's a completely separate debate that I don't think we have time for on this uh, current pod. <laughs>
0: Yeah, fair enough. Well, Ryan. Um, I think this is a really great conversation. Appreciate you coming and distilling this down. Um, it's msomao.com If you'd like to read Ryan's website, and has links to, you know, his uh, his LinkedIn as well on there. And Ryan, we'd love to have you back on in a few months. Um, hopefully to talk about how right you were, uh, and and hopefully to talk about what's going to come next.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again for having me on. Would love to jump back on in a few months. Hopefully uh, the crystal ball works out. But if I'm wrong, happy to talk about where I was wrong and potentially what happened.
0: Okay, thank you, everybody. Until next time.
2: This podcast is a general communication and entertainment being provided for informational purposes only.